I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. We remember that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to those believers in Philippi while he himself was imprisoned, most likely in Rome. And in this letter, the Apostle expresses his thanksgiving to God for those believers there in Philippi, for their partnership with him in the gospel. And he thanks the believers for the gift that they had sent to him by the hand of their brother Epaphroditus. And Paul encourages the believers toward unity. Stand with one another in the truth. And they were to do this by putting on the mind of Christ. Preferring one another in humility. So we see these themes in the book of Philippians. Thanksgiving and unity. And we see this theme of joy and rejoicing. And in chapter 4 and verse 4, the apostle instructs the believers to rejoice in the Lord. And then he addresses a subject that's familiar to each of us. Perhaps more so than we would care to admit, and the subject is that of anxiety. And the instruction that Paul gives to the Philippians regarding anxiety is as relevant for us today as it was to those whom Paul wrote. And so I would invite you to stand, please, in honor of God. We're going to read from Philippians chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 4 and read through verse 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Please be seated. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the privilege we have to gather together as your church. Thank you for your word. And our desire is to to learn this morning. Conform us, we pray, to the image of Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. You know the feeling? The the same thoughts keep spinning around and around in your mind. You feel like a frenzied juggler. Your worries, problems, and fears whirl around in your head like so many china plates. And you feel so afraid, preoccupied, obsessed. You're afraid that if you lose focus for even one second, your whole life will come crashing down. You have plenty of company. Anxiety affects everyone. No one escapes. In a worrisome world, we all feel anxious sometimes. You might not feel all of the unpleasant effects of extreme anxiety. The churning stomach, the fluttering feelings, the cold hands, the going over something in your mind a hundred times. But the problem of worry and obsessing 
is universal. So says biblical counselor David Paulison in his little book, little booklet titled, Overcoming Anxiety, Relief for Worried People. Anxiety is not uncommon. Most of us would acknowledge that we're often anxious about many things. We've experienced the reality of the proverb that says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. We've experienced the debilitating effect of anxiety. And since this is true, how are we to respond to this nagging, to those nagging anxious thoughts that burden us? And in the text we have before us this morning, we're going to note three instructions the Apostle Paul gives us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He gives us instruction on how to deal with anxiety. And the conclusion we're going to reach is that prayer, indeed thankful prayer, is the Christian's corrective to anxiety. Paul begins by telling the Philippians here, be anxious for nothing. Or as it's translated in the ESV, do not be anxious about anything. Here is a command, an exhortation from the lips of the imprisoned apostle to those in Philippi. And his instruction, his instruction is simply this, don't be anxious. The word translated anxious here is the same word translated concerned back in chapter 2 in verse 20 where Paul is describing Timothy's concern for the Philippians. He says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Here is genuine, legitimate, loving concern for people. Certainly Paul is not forbidding this concern, so what is it? That he's forbidding. It's, it's unnecessarily concerned. Being unnecessarily concerned. It's that of worry and apprehension about what may be. The noun form of this word has been defined this way. Anxiety. Care that brings disruption to the personality and the mind. It's not difficult for most of us to identify with this kind of concern. Because it rears its ugly head in numerous ways in our lives. We find ourselves unduly concerned about the future, about finances, about family, about schedules, about children, about deadlines, and the list goes on and on. Paul's instruction here to those whom he dearly loves, these saints in Philippi, his instruction, do not be anxious, remind us of the words of our Lord in that well-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, from verses 25 to 34, our Lord repeats this phrase, do not be anxious, three times. In verse 25, he says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will put on. 
Then again in verse 31, our Lord says, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? And again in verse 34, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Our Lord taught his disciples here in this sermon that that such anxiety, such worry, such distress about the basic necessities of life betrayed a lack of confidence in the kind provision of their heavenly Father. Jesus reminded his disciples here that their heavenly Father knew precisely what they needed Think for a moment what's being communicated in these two words, Heavenly Father. We might think of heaven as the place of God's dwelling. God in heaven speaks of his transcendence, his his otherness. He is up here. He's he's up there over all. The, The psalmist writes, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So we understand God is heavenly in that he he rules over his creation. But he's not only God in heaven, he's our heavenly father. As such, he loves and cares for his children. And God has so ordered his plan of salvation that when an individual places his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that individual is adopted into the family of God and can call God my heavenly Father. This is the beautiful relationship made possible for us by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our heavenly Father, one who is kind and compassionate, one who's loving and patient. Again, the psalmist says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. Our heavenly father knows we're frail. He knows we're dependent upon him. Consider further the character of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Was it not our Lord who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here then is the invitation of our God. Come to me. We come to God Through Christ, he is worthy of our praise and he is to be trusted. The glorious reality then is that our God is in heaven. He's ruling over all and he's father to his children. As such, he's able to provide. He knows our needs and he's able to provide for our needs. This was true when our Lord spoke the words to his apostles during that what we call the Sermon on the Mount and it's true for us today. He knows our needs. This hasn't changed. So our Lord says here in the sermon, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. 
we return now to Philippians. And here the Apostle Paul simply says, be anxious for nothing. And by nothing, he means nothing. Don't be anxious about anything. The Philippians were were anxious, presently anxious about something. And so Paul speaks to them and his instruction is, stop worrying. Don't be anxious. What was it that the Philippians were anxious about? We don't know for certain. Perhaps they were concerned about those who were opposed to the gospel. Back in chapter 1 and verse 28, Paul instructs them, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Perhaps they were concerned about their, their safety or the safety of their loved ones, knowing that the threats of persecution for those who had put their faith in Jesus Christ was not out of the picture. Perhaps they were unduly concerned about Paul's well-being or Epaphroditus, the one whom they had sent. Regardless of the circumstances that the Philippians were, were facing, Paul's instruction stands, be anxious for nothing. And no doubt as we're here this morning, Many of us perhaps are distracted in our thinking because of circumstances that we're facing. We're consumed with anxious thoughts, wondering, what if this happens? Or what if this does not happen? And we think through scenarios and, and wish we could redo things and we, we begin to grow anxious about possible outcomes. The instruction for us is the same as it was to the Philippians Do not be anxious. But why? How can Paul give such bold instruction? Notice what immediately precedes this command. Look at the end of of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Or, the Lord is near. This may refer to the return of the Lord. The Lord's return is near. At which time he will usher the believer into the eternal state. And we will dwell with him forever. He will punish those who have persecuted his people. And so we can understand, perhaps this is what Paul means. The Lord is near. His return is soon. He sees what's happening. And he's going to bring about justice. Therefore, don't worry. The Lord is near. Or Paul may mean, the Lord is near spatially. He is near his children. Near in the sense that the the psalmist wrote when he says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near and will comfort the believer. So the command to the Philippians is the same as to us today. Do not be anxious. Perhaps it's helpful to take a moment and think what is causing us to feel anxious this morning as we think about the week ahead of us. We think about appointments we have. We think about our schedule, 
our health or the health of a loved one, hear the gracious words of our God. The Lord isn't here. Don't be anxious. Be anxious for nothing, says Paul. But he doesn't stop here. We're given this two-part instruction, which is uh, something we see with the Apostle Paul in his writings. In Colossians, Paul gives instructions for us, for the believers there, to put off. right? Put off anger and wrath and malice and obscene talk. Right? Put this off. Instruction number one. Instruction number two is put on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear, okay, so we're going to put off and put on. Here in Philippians, Paul says, don't be anxious. Be anxious about anything, but, but in everything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Note here that everything means everything. In every situation and in every circumstance. This is contrasted with the nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Pray about everything. These words are all-encompassing. Leaving no loophole. And we conclude then that prayer, prayer is the Christian's corrective to anxiety. We we must not overlook the kindness of our God in giving us these instructions. He gives us instruction for how to live. Our Lord knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. He knows we struggle with anxiety. How kind of our God to give us this gift we call prayer, to help us combat our anxious thoughts. So what does it mean to pray? We might think about prayer simply as talking with God. Again, the Sermon on the Mount and the words of our Lord. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Prayer is talking with God. It's communion with God. But who can pray? Who is it that can approach Almighty God through this act we call prayer and call Him Father? These words may be spoken by believers only. Those who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and have been adopted into the family of God and thus call God Father. There is but one way to God. It's through Christ. And through Christ alone, Jesus, the one mediator. And because of the work of Christ, we who are in Christ now have access to God We have access to him who rules from the heavens, rules over all creation, 
Because of the work of Christ, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's no wonder when Paul instructed the Philippians here about anxiety and prayer that he first reminded them to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, be glad that in Christ we have access to the very throne room of heaven? Paul stacks up three synonyms here. Prayer, supplication, and requests. I think the point in so doing is, is for us as believers to grasp the importance, indeed the necessity of prayer in the face of anxiety. We've talked about prayer, communion with God, Petitioning God, making our our petitions known. Supplication, something similar. Perhaps with a bit more urgency. But there's more. We're invited, indeed instructed, to make our requests known to God. We're instructed to make our requests known to God. This word request is only found two other places in the New Testament. In Luke 23, we're reading about the events leading up to the crucifixion of the Lord and the Jews are are demanding that Christ be crucified. Their demand, there's the word, specific request that he be crucified. The other place that we find this word is in 1 John chapter 5, this, this familiar passage. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 14, says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Then verse 15, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The point for us is to be specific in our prayers. Make our specific requests known to our God. We shouldn't think about this as as somehow informing the all-knowing God. For he knows the very words we will speak before they cross our lips. And he knows what we need before we ask. Rather, what's happening here is is acknowledging our utter dependence upon God and our faith in Him. We're letting our requests be known to Him, communicating that we are needy for Him and we trust in Him. The psalmist writes, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. So we've seen that we're to pray in every situation, recognizing that prayer is is talking with God. And because of the work of Christ on our behalf, we approach God as our Heavenly Father. We make known to Him our requests, which is to say we should be specific in our prayers. But there's more to consider here with regard to prayer. Our prayers should be saturated with thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving is a regular part of the Christian life. The more we comprehend the work of Christ, the greater our thanksgiving. The more we understand about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, the greater our thanksgiving will be. We respond to God in praise with overflowing gratitude and thanks that he would send his son to redeem sinful creatures like me and like you. Paul instructed the Colossians in a similar way. He instructed them to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul exemplified thanksgiving in his prayers. A brief study of the opening chapter of Paul's epistles. Uh, in nearly every letter, Paul offers prayers with thanksgiving to God for the believers to whom he wrote. He began this very letter I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We can look at examples such as this to help us learn to pray. And we learn that we are to pray with thanksgiving. So Paul has instructed the the Philippians here, be anxious for nothing, pray about everything. In fact, we would say that prayer is the Christian's corrective to anxiety. We've also said that most of us, if not all of us, would acknowledge that we're often anxious about many things. And so we're not without opportunity to put into practice what we see here What does this look like for us? How might we pray through a particular struggle we're facing? A struggle, a very real struggle with anxiety. As we think about the week ahead, perhaps there's an appointment that we have with an individual. Or we're concerned about the health of a loved one. How might we pray? Well, we begin with with thanksgiving. We thank God for the very gift of prayer that we can talk with him because of what Christ has done. We magnify his name by giving him thanks. Thank you, Lord, for giving me life. Thank you for making a way for me to be reconciled to you. We begin here. Thank you for the life you've given to the individual that we're concerned about. We continue pouring out our hearts to God. We we make our requests known. Lord, my request would be that you would grant me favor in the eyes of this individual with whom I'm going to meet this week. My request, Lord, would be that you would bring healing to this individual. Would you please restore health? Here is my request. And we rest. We rest trusting in him. 
Lord, I trust you for the outcome. Think with me what's going on in a prayer like this. What are we communicating? We're communicating gratitude to God. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. We're communicating dependence upon him. Lord, I have no ability, none. No ability to change this individual. It's beyond my power. It's this humble recognition of who we are. We are frail. Is God not honored in this? We acknowledge our dependence upon him. Lord, we need you. We're acknowledging our frailty and our finitude as we cast ourselves and our burdens on our God. And in this, he's glorified. So we're not to be anxious about anything. Instead, we're to pray about everything. And finally, we must trust God completely. Trust God completely. As we approach verse 7, I think it would be beneficial for us just to look up a few verses previous and notice the number of imperatives, the number of commands that we see in these verses. Beginning in verse 4, we see uh, rejoice in the Lord. And then again, rejoice, there's two. Let your reasonableness be known, there's command number three. Don't be anxious, number four. Let your requests be known to God. So five times in these two verses, it's just a a rapid fire, command, command, command. Do this, do this, do this. And then we come to verse seven. And this verse contains what we call an indicative. It's a statement of fact. Notice the verb in this verse. Translated here, will guard. Will guard. Done. This is what will happen. The peace of God will guard you. And so though there's not a command explicitly given in this verse, I believe there's a command implied, and the command is this, trust. Trust that what God says will happen, will happen. Trust that what God says he will do, he will do. The third instruction for us is to trust God completely. We confess we're often anxious about many things. But we remember, like the Philippians, we've been instructed, don't be anxious about anything. Pray about everything, making our requests known to God with thanksgiving. And the result of our prayer is found here in verse 7. The peace of God will guard us. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that the trouble we are facing will dissipate. Nor does it say our circumstances will change on the spot. Nor does it say that we will be granted what we've requested. What it does say is that God's peace will guard us.
What is God's peace? We learn in Romans 5, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This peace with God assures us that his wrath has been satisfied, fully satisfied. We stand before him fully justified because of the work of Christ. And we're at peace with God. He's no longer angry with us. It seems to me this peace, this peace with God is foundational for us to better understand the peace of God spoken of here. In other words, if we haven't experienced peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, we will not begin to understand the peace of God. helpful for us to think about the character of God in order to begin to grasp, to begin to understand his peace. We can think of God's peace as that which he himself possesses. Think about God. God is never troubled or distressed. Since he knows the end from the beginning, he's never taken by surprise. There is no anxiety with God. The peace of God is the calm, the tranquility that he possesses. It is this peace that will guard us. Before Christ was crucified, he comforted his disciples. He gave us these words that we read in John 14. I'm going to read them. John 14 and verse 27. Our Lord said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And in his commentary on the book of of John, Andreas Kostenberger writes these helpful words about this particular verse. Listen to what he says. In contrast to the worldly conceptions of peace as the absence of war, Jesus' peace is not an exemption from turmoil, danger, and duress, all of which he is facing as he speaks. As Jesus is about to remind his followers, the world hates them, and in this world they will face affliction. Rather than extracting them from the danger, Jesus, through the Spirit he would send, offers his followers poise, and resolve in the midst of discomfitting circumstances. As Jesus was about to demonstrate, his peace is not the absence of conditions that intimidate, but rather is the composure to be faithful in the face of adversity. This is the kind of peace we see here in Philippians. Indeed, the peace of God that surpasses our understanding This is to say it's beyond our comprehension. How is it that a child of God can experience a calm assurance in the midst of the most excruciating circumstances? We must attribute this to the peace 
of God. This peace that surpasses all understanding. Should we be surprised by this? Most Sunday mornings here at Bethany Community Church, we close with a benediction from Ephesians chapter 3. And we hear these words together. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Is it any wonder that the peace of God will come and guard the hearts and minds of his children? This peace of God will guard us. Paul uses a a military term here. One used to describe a group of soldiers surrounding and protecting a city. And when those readers in Philippi received this letter and read this, no doubt what came to their mind was the military post, the, the garrison there around this city. And so Paul uses this this military term of protection to describe the way that God's peace will guard and protect the children of God. He says that God's peace will guard our hearts and our minds. This is a way to speak of our whole person. The heart includes our, our thinking, our feelings and emotions, and our willing and volition. We can, we can kind of divide the heart up into these three areas. God will guard my thinking. He'll guard my emotions. He'll guard my, my willing and my desires. Furthermore, he's going to guard my mind. The faculty of thinking peace of God will guard all of you. Here's the comfort found in this verse. God's peace will guard our whole inner being. How? How is this possible? I think we see the answer here at the end of the verse in these words, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? If God's peace is going to guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus, which implies that apart from being in Christ Jesus, we will not experience the peace of God, it's essential for us to grasp what being in Christ Jesus means. To be in Christ Jesus is to be united with him. It's to have died with him and been raised to walk in newness of life with him. To be in Christ means that we're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. To be in Christ means we're possessors of eternal life. To be in Christ means we are adopted children of God. To be in Christ means we're no longer under condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ means we're loved by God and eternally secure in his love. Romans 8.39 says, Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be in Christ is to be enthroned in the heavens with him. So to be in Christ means we're a new creation. We possess eternal life. We're sons and daughters of God. We're no longer under condemnation. We're kept eternally secure. We're enthroned in the heavenly places. 
we conclude, therefore, that in Christ, or because we are in Christ Jesus, the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. We've said that the command for us is to trust God completely. Trusting that when we come to him, and we're able to come to him because of the work of Christ on our behalf, when we come to him in thankful prayer, yes, this thankful prayer that is our corrective to anxiety, his peace will guard us. We said when we started that anxiety is not uncommon. Most of us would acknowledge that we're often anxious about many things. But our Lord has not left us to himself. He's given us instruction. He reminds us that he is near. He is near and instructs us, do not be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. And when we approach our God in thankful prayer, his peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we give you praise this morning for your word. And we ask that you would take these truths and hide them deep in our hearts so when we leave this place and we are in a battle against anxious thoughts that by your spirit you would recall to mind the truths that we find here. Help us to trust you. Help us to to rest in you. By your grace, we will, we will believe that you will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.